You're listening to the Running in Production podcast, where developers and engineers talk about their tech stacks, lessons learned, and general tips from running web apps in production. Here's Nick and today's guest. Welcome to Running in Production. Today, I'm with Jesse Hunt, who is using Django and Python to power a site that lets you look at 3D scans of cars. Jesse, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, happy to have you on. So do you want to kick things off by introducing yourself and letting people know a little bit more about what your site does? Yes, uh, my name is Jesse Hunt, and I'm a freelance software developer and a consultant for Creon IT. And I built the Twinner site, which is what we refer to it as, for customers and insurance adjusters to view 3D scans of cars coming from a platform called the Twinner platform, which is quite literally a machine that you can drive a car into and it has SLR cameras built into different points including under the car in front of the car and it'll actually spin it on a platter and generate a 3D view along with an interior view due to uh, 360 degree cameras that they put inside the car. Yeah that is super cool. So for listeners out there unfortunately unless this changes in the future the site's not publicly accessible, right? Like you can't just view these models without an account. No, on this site, you cannot. There is the generic Twinner site that I could refer people to where they can take a look at what a scan would look like. Uh, they've got a reference example on their homepage. It's Twinner uh, with two ends. Okay, yeah, I'll just drop a link to that one in the show notes, but it was really cool. It was like very comparable to how Google Maps work where you kind of just click down on your mouse and, and drag it left and right, and you kind of just pan around, and you get this like virtual like tour of the inside of the car. It was very cool. Exactly. It's it's amazing the, the detail that you get into it, and the machine itself is pretty cool to watch. You step in, and it feels kind of like you're in a rap music video from the early 2000s where everything's pure white around you. <laughs> right. So what would happen if you step into that? Will it make like a 3D model of your whole body? Well, uh, it, it gets a little touchy about the cars itself, so we haven't been able to actually get a person inside of it. Uh, you kind of have to sometimes override it with uh, some of the classic cars that we've brought in, where it says, oh, the car's not close enough to the edge. It's kind of uh, got sensors similar to a uh, the car wash uh, machines that you would have at the gas station, where it tells you stop, back up, stop, back up, and then, you know, keep coming, and then every time you overshoot it by a small millimeter. <laughs> so you mentioned uh, you do freelance work. Is it just you who developed this project for that company? Yes. In this case, this is a solo project. And then I work with a consulting company called Creon IT, where I work with some larger clients on some larger things where we're working with uh, much, much bigger data sets and doing uh, financial data, ticketing data, stuff like that. Right. So how long has this site been up and running for? This site's been up and running for about six months. Okay. And uh, for reference there, that would be roughly the beginning of 2020, late 2019? Exactly. Right about the beginning of 2020, it went from testing into production. Nice. So what was the dev time on that just to get the MVP up? Or, you know, once you got to the point where, you you know, this started to mold into the actual app? Well, we had some, we had a lot of discussions with the client where we went back and forth where I, I'd have to say I built three completely out of the ground new MVPs due to how the client wanted to authorize individual people to see the cars and to make sure 
that we were in line with GDPR restrictions and stuff like that. And so every time we would step into a meeting and I'd say, all right, I built it like this. And now we can authorize like this, but the workflow didn't really fit with the employees. So when I was rebuilding that, I also used that as opportunities to just go through and revamp the code. So we had about six months of back and forth where I, like I said, built the MVPs and then we took the third MVP from testing into production. Right. I guess uh, third time's a charm, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, this isn't like a really like a businessy podcast, but I mean, I'm trying to figure out like, you know, how much traffic this site gets. Like who is like the target audience for something like this? The target audience is the people who actually get these cars scanned and also different people who would have value on looking at these. So uh, the scans that you have access to are clean cars, you know, where everything's fine, but they actually have a lot of cars that have been in wrecks and stuff like that. So at that point, um, they can immediately bring the car in, scan the car. The insurance adjusters are getting the information and they can even see the alignment of the tires and the axles um, based on how the car rolls in. So it helps for the client who is a classic car collector, but also a, uh, a type of insurance adjuster in Germany called a Gutachter, uh, who actually uh, steps in between the client and the insurance company to help uh, make sure the claim gets as well processed as possible so that all the small details are picked up for high value uh, automobiles or something similar. Okay. And what does that translate to to maybe traffic numbers? Like how many people use this app maybe? Uh, we're getting we're getting probably about 100 to 200 during a good month. Right now during Corona times, the scanner isn't being used very often. So I'd say right now we're probably getting five to 10 hits per month. And then, like I said, during during the higher times, we're getting 100 to 200 because this is very industry specific or for collectors of cars. We had uh, our first clients a few a few months ago who want to bring something into scan to sell a car, which is pretty interesting. Huh. Yeah, that is pretty interesting. Cause imagine being able to take like a virtual tour of the car online. Like, yeah, that's pretty cool. Exactly. There's, there's a, an interesting market that might be developing here. So going back to this app here, you know, you developed this for six months, couple of MVPs, like what motivated you to use Django and Python? I had been working with another client on a Web2Pi project, in fact, multiple Web2Pi projects. And I really liked staying with Python because it's one of the languages I like the most going through a computer science program. And um, when I was done with those Web2Pi projects, I just kept feeling like, I feel like there's a better way to do this. There's got to be a more modern solution. And so I came across Flask, I came across Django, I really like the batteries included approach of Django. Right. Yeah. I haven't worked too much with Django firsthand, but I do like the idea of batteries included. Like, are you using some of those batteries, like the admin and the auth libraries and stuff like that? I'm using pretty much all of that stuff. Most of the batteries are still in there, including the generic database hookups. The I'm using the Django all auth package, uh, which is a little bit improved over what the basic part is there, but Honestly, for the scope of this project, the, the normal one would have also done done just fine. Okay. And what about maybe some Python libraries? Like, I would imagine these images come in in a very specific format, right? Uh, the images, yes. Um, it's actually being delivered via an API. 
So a lot of these stuff here is being delivered by the API in terms of images and the JavaScript application that runs the, the scan viewer itself. And then the client was very specific that they want to have this data loaded locally so that they would have copies of all the images and stuff that the scans are producing. Uh, so how does this work in the end though, when it comes to like embedding that, the thing that allows you to, the, I guess all well, the JavaScript that allows you to rotate and zoom around as you would see something like a Google Maps, is this something that you just embed as like an iframe, like similar to how you would embed a YouTube video into a page or is it much different than that? Exactly, it's an iframe that we get from the, from the Twitter people there. So we've also been working with them as they've been improving their, their software and the application. So there's actually been a little bit of dialogue back and forth as they're bringing this uh, more online. And Art Side has been one of the first usages of their, of their API. Oh, very cool. Yeah, so your site, I guess, is not really dealing with the low-level details of like parsing out those images and building that whole viewer by scratch. It's more like, um, I don't know, like a wrapper around their iframe embed where you just have accounts and metadata and all sorts of stuff like that. Is that about accurate or no? Exactly. And due to how the GDPR works, the, uh, the general data protection regulations or the EU uh, privacy regulations there, we couldn't use an out-of-the-box solution that they had. So we needed something that we could have better user control and also control what kind of data was getting collected from the user. Right. So have you gone all out then for GDPR compliance? Like, can users look at like a list of data they have that you've collected and then delete that if they want? Um, they would have to contact the client themselves for that. And then we would immediately be, be removing that because with the GDPR, Thing. We just made sure that we collected as little data as possible. So I, I know the email address of, of a user and not much else because we felt like that was pushing it too far. And then we also pushed over the last few months to actually create signs to put over the license plates of the cars because anything that's going digital at that point, we would have to be responsible if a image of a car, especially one from a car accident or something, if it was found on the internet or, you know, if something got compromised. So we're trying to just make sure everything stays as private as possible, because like I said, we're talking about cars that have been in accidents. There's also um, the police have a usage for the software as well in terms of using it for, for looking at cars after accidents or for crime scenes. So it's very important that we have a high level of security and as little information as possible that could be used in any kind of privacy sense. Yeah, that makes total sense. And well, I guess as an outsider, I'm not from the EU, but I still take privacy and security. And I like the transparency of, you know, user data being anonymous when possible. And they're, they're you know, in full control of things like that. Like, what's your take right now on implementing like proper GDPR compliance stuff with Django or any web app in general? Is this something that like really hinders your ability to develop a product? Like, are you spending a lot of time making sure things are compliant? Um it's not so much that I'm spending a lot of time worrying about compliance. I just tell clients we want to keep however much data that you're trying to get about a customer as minimal as possible. And pretty much the moment we've gotten beyond having their email address and we start taking their name or their address, we want to go ahead and get in contact with the lawyer and make sure that there's an actual legal statement. There's not really one good out of the box, you know, 
blob of text you can put somewhere in the same way that deployments are super unique. Every time you're collecting data about a customer, it's going to be a unique situation. So I tell my customers, try and either limit any data that you're getting, or you need to go ahead and bring a lawyer into the fold. So it's made it harder for me to develop, only in terms of understanding that we can get out of out in front of our skis really quickly if we're collecting data and aren't very clearly um, saying how we're using it and how it's uh, being stored and that it's being stored safely. I'd say as a developer, the biggest thing is that I want to make sure the data is stored safely, that nobody can access it, that there's no way that somebody would accidentally gain access to a database. Right. Yeah, those are all great things to be mindful of, you know, when developing any type of app. I like it. So going back to your app itself, is this more of a monolithic app or do you have it broken up into microservices? Also, as a side note, are you using Django apps? If so, uh, can you rattle off some of those names? Um, so in terms of Django apps, we're basically using white noise, uh, the Django all auth package, and that's, that's it. I wanted to make sure that I'm not getting too much stuff that I don't explicitly understand or I couldn't replace if I needed to. Um, and I forgot the other part of the question, so you're going to have to repeat that real quick. Okay. Yeah, if it was just more of like a monolithic app, or do you have it broken up into individual microservices or even a couple of different services? It's running on two separate Dino instances on Heroku. So in that, I could say, you could say it's running in microservices, but basically it's one monolith split between those two instances. Okay. So one monolithic app load balanced across two instances. Not even load balance. It's just Django in its containerized form with what we are asking to do with it, combined with Celery and um, going to the API and downloading a large volume of images and stuff really overwhelmed a single, uh, a single dyno. So I wanted to split it between two so that never becomes an issue. Okay, and we'll definitely dive into those details in a second here. But you mentioned using white noise. Do you maybe just want to give a TLDR on what that is? White noise is for static file storage. And so um, when you're talking with Django projects, especially when you start listening to things like the Django chat podcast, you talk, you'll hear a lot talked about the cloud, uh, CloudFront CDNs, Cloudflare CDNs, and stuff like that. But we have a very, very clean and small project. I built it with uh, Material Design Lite, so we can get into that later. But basically, I wanted to make sure everything was as small as possible. So white noise allows me to keep the static files with the Django application itself when the containers are being built. So it's not being hosted somewhere else. The static resources are in the Django instance itself being loaded. Oh, okay. So is this something that is very specific to Heroku then, or no? Oh, no. This is a pretty standard Django package. And um, like I said, you would be making the decision, basically, if you were wanting to host static files locally, uh, you would want to be using something like White Noise, I think, is the predominant solution for that. And then if you felt like you wanted to grab the resources from elsewhere, you would be using a CDN. Oh, Okay. Yeah, so it almost sounds like maybe white noise is comparable to, well, maybe not 100% comparable, but you could also use Nginx to serve your static files. Mm -hmm. If you were hosting it somewhere other than Heroku, that would definitely be a solution. And we can get into that uh, when we talk about Heroku. Okay. So you mentioned monolithic app. 
do you know like roughly like number of lines of code on the app? Doesn't need to be exact. I, I did take a look, uh, and honestly, it's less than a thousand lines of Python code, and uh, less than a thousand lines of HTML using the Django templating language. Oh wow! So isn't that an amazing uh, feat of batteries included? Right? You build out this whole entire app, and it's like a thousand lines of code. Exactly, and I would say during the rebuilds and stuff, I was consuming more and more Django resources because I've really tried to pivot my my projects going forward towards Django. So I, I feel like I've picked up a lot of competence and now was able to build something that, like I said, is super slim and easy and runs quickly. Nice. So, I mean, maybe can you try to like paint a picture of, of what your application does a bit on the back end? Like we mentioned that you just embed those iframes, but like what else, like what's composing that? 1K lines, lines of code. Okay, so um, basically we kept it to a simple approach of there are, there are cars, there are users, and there are user permissions. There's a Django package that enables uh, record level permissions called Guardian that I felt like was a little more code than I wanted. So there's some, some database logic for making sure that a user has access to a specific car. Um, but Everything is using Django class-based views outside of a single function-based view. And class-based views basically allow you to work on a model using this model view templating concept where there's not much you have to do if you're just doing simple things that would be, you know, I'd say normal database operations of creating a new entry, editing an entry, joining an entry, that kind of thing can all be accomplished via class-based views. So there's not a lot of logic that isn't tested right out of the box. Oh, okay. So this application itself, is it, is it mainly using Django's uh, templating engine with like li little bit of JavaScript here and there, or is it more like an API-based app then with a JavaScript front-end? Uh, it's, it's completely using the Django templating language. Uh, as we discussed, there's the the twinner javascript application that we've got there running in an iframe that's literally embedded in the template which also means we can do some pre-loading optimization when we're loading it right and earlier you, you kind of hinted that you were using what was it materialize for the css uh, i'm i was actually using the legacy material design light project uh, which is from the material uh, google's material one which I had a lot of uh, time with in college, just using it for Android mockups and things like that. So I had a level of familiarity with that. And it's considered, I think, legacy code at this point, now that they've moved on to Material 2 and they've got the new Material framework, but it was much easier to get it going right out of the box. I think I had to insert in two CSS links and one, uh, yeah, two CSS links to their to the Material Design Light API. So it's pretty much ready to go. And I can use good looking components without sticking much effort into it. Nice. Yeah, I don't have first-hand experience using that one, but is that framework just loaded up with all sorts of like pre-baked components that you can use like buttons and form inputs, like similar to Bootstrap, but just looks a little bit different? Exactly. It's very similar to Bootstrap, um, but I, I just had a affinity for Google products. So at that time I was using Material Design more than I was Bootstrap. Let's say nowadays I'm bridging that gap a little bit more. Right. 
yeah, no, I'm a fan of, uh, you know, any type of framework that just helps you build. Like for me, design work has always been one of my biggest weaknesses. It's one of those things where it's like, yeah, I'm not a professional artist, but I love being able to take little little pre-built widgets or components from some CSS library and just use them. Is that like how you are too, or are you actually a designer as well? Oh, no, that's certainly one of the things that I don't consider myself to have a strong competency in. I'm trying to learn more as I go and did a hackathon a few weeks ago for COVID-19 here in Europe where I did nothing but wireframing and design just to force myself to interact with the process more. And I got to say, it's still not my strong suit. So having something out of the box like Material or Bootstrap is is really good for helping get, getting a project going. Yeah, for sure. Now, do you end up using any like complicated or not complicated, but do you use any dedicated front end tools for this app, like Webpack to bundle up all of your assets or are you using SAS instead of CSS, things like that? I'm using straight CSS and um, this comes back to the benefits of material design light. I think I'm loading 19 kilobits from, from the uh, Google resources that I've also now got stored locally as static assets. So I, I felt like I couldn't really get much more optimization out of how it was already bundled up outside of storing the, the, the CSS stuff locally that I would have gotten via their CDN. Nice. So maybe now we can talk a little bit more about other things in your tech stack. So you mentioned containers that are running on Heroku. Do you happen to use Docker also in development? Oh, yes, absolutely. I, I have moved pretty much everything that I can over to Docker. I saw when I was... Uh, looking at some of the content that you produce that you're a big Docker fan. And I just, I'm, I'm thankful that there's people like you out there who are helping get the word out because it has made my life so much easier. <laughs> yeah, no problem. And yeah, it's one of those things where it's like, you know, I don't want to make this podcast about me, but been using Docker since 2014, still using it today. And it's not because of weird reasons, right? It's just that it actually helps me build and deploy apps like in a very efficient way and it makes me happy. So I use it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, at the consulting firm that I work at, the the head guy there has been slowly moving over to it and he's been really impressed by it because we've been running, like I said, some things with really large data sets or huge databases or the web applications that we've strapped to it. And we were getting lost in stacks of, you know, like figuring out for a large application, we had like eight Git repos and for me coming in as an entry level or as a junior developer out of college, I was overwhelmed by being like, well, this is one project. Why do we have eight Git repos and being able to dockerize things and now have like a better, I'd say even abstract concept of this is what this is doing. This is what this is doing. This has really helped me out. And I, I'm really thankful to Compose for that, being able to always have a clear delineation of what's doing what and where the services are. Right. Yeah, that's very well put. The way you say it gives you kind of like an abstract view of what's going on. It's like suddenly, even if you're a junior developer at day one, you can kind of just look at that Docker Compose file and be like, okay, well, we have Postgres and we have Redis and we have this worker. And like you identify these things that you're using, but you don't need to know how to install Postgres on your computer or uh, Redis as well, right? It, it kind of can just run that Compose command and you're off to the races. Exactly. And having that flexibility to not have to have, you know, one of every database software on the planet installed on a Windows machine where, you know, your configuration is slowly tearing your hair out over time. You know, it, it's nice to, to just know, hey, 
I'm going to press the button here on this compose instance. It's going to spin up. And then I've got these services ready to go. And I don't have to worry about, oh, is this the latest version? And I mean, the, the, the headache saved and the, the space on my computer and configurations that are able to stay constant has just been wonderful for, for my mental sanity. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Same here. Well, I, I like to say maybe I'm still sane, but who knows at, at this point? <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it's it's levels of levels of sanity through time. <laughs> right. So you mentioned using Celery. Are you using Redis for the back end of that or no? Yes, I am. And then Postgres also? Or? Yes, I'm also using Postgres. And yeah, that's all being hosted by Heroku too. So in development, obviously, I've got the local instances, but I was able to spin them up with zero issue uh, using Heroku. Nice. So yeah, we can talk maybe a little bit about Heroku now. If you're open to talking about like which types of tiers you have of certain things, maybe? Absolutely. Like what type of dyno, what type of dyno do you use for starters? Um, yeah, so we use two hobby dynos for this project. Uh, like I said, we're, we're not having a huge volume of users, but enough to where if people stumble across the site, you don't want the 30-second spin-up of a free dyno or something like that. You obviously want the website to be available at all times. And outside of that, we're using the free tiers for Postgres and for Redis. I'm also using Paper Trail and this application, I mean, it's a production application, but we're not having to put out more than 20 a month to keep this thing running and it runs really well. Nice. Yeah, because those dynos are what, $7 a month, I think, for each one? Exactly, $7 a month. And so back when we first were spinning up the test instance, like I said, I noticed there's a, a bit of a load issue with Celery where when it was pulling in a bunch of new scans at once, it would kind of knock out the the the, the web the web service workers, so the page wasn't loading. I was like, okay, the, the one dyno is being overloaded. We can spring for a, a whole another seven dollars for a second one. So it, it it ended up just being so cost efficient that I'm very surprised. Yeah. Now, actually, I don't have a huge amount of experience with Heroku. When you say that you have these two dynos each individually running. Do you have it set up then where the salary worker is on one of them and the website's on the other one? Or is it kind of both of them just both doing their thing? Exactly. So in this case, what you have is you've got the Django code is in both of these dynos. It's the exact same code. One of them is just running salary and salary is running in Django. So it's able to basically talk with the Django app and they're sharing their uh, configuration settings through the Heroku uh configuration panel and then the, the environment variables and stuff that you you live there that live there so everything both of those apps are talking to the same database and all that stuff and they're pulling their environment variables from the same place and there was no extra setup required right that makes sense so one of those dynos specifically is only handling web requests and the other one is just churning through background jobs with salary with the worker exactly okay and then for the one doing the web requests which python or Django app server did you choose? Is it Gunicorn, Uwisgi, something else? All the web request stuff. Uh, it's it's running through Gunicorn. Okay. So when it comes to this Heroku setup, are you really able to get by on the free tier of Postgres? Like, obviously you are because you said you are and, and you're using it, but like, what's some of the limitations on that? Uh, the limitation is the number of rows that you have in there. So as the project goes, uh, grows larger and we've got more cars and stuff, eventually... We'll have to price out of that tier, but for right now, it's 
a perfect solution. We've got everything to where it's encrypted in there and we're making backups uh, internally in the web application itself or actually in the Celery application itself. So the free tier for Postgres is working now and if we price out of that, then I'll have to make the decision if we're gonna keep using Heroku's Postgres or if I'm gonna home bake a solution for that. Right, so let's say if you were to end up home, home baking a solution from that, what would you do? Like what would be step one? I'd say from what I've just been looking at, uh, we're, we're not talking about an intense amount of data. So I'd probably be looking at DigitalOcean and hosting something there, or just looking at one of the fully hosted solutions. Um, right now we've got the backups running into uh, Amazon S3 instance. So I'm not as worried about the stability of a droplet, seeing as I can pretty much pull it back up if anything catastrophic happens. Right. Yeah, that makes total sense. But I, I, I have to say, just based on a lot of what I hear in terms of watching conferences, talking with people who use these larger services, I've been strongly advised it would be a good idea to maybe just go for a hosted a hosted Postgres solution. I just feel like at this point, the price doesn't quite justify the end. Right. So if you think if you were to ever move over to that setup, would you move everything over to DigitalOcean or somewhere else or just the database part? I'd have to say just the database part because I'm freed of a lot of what I would expect it or what I expected to be sysadmin work with Heroku in terms of it manages my SSL certificate and it's also going to handle you know, whatever load is being thrown at it without me having to involve a CDN like Cloudflare. Right. And that is a pretty big win, right? Just to know that, you know, you're kind of dealing at a level where you're moving sliders around to scale instead of having to manually screw around with load balancers or, you know, somewhere in between. Exactly. And for a lot of the, a lot of the projects that I'm getting involved in with small businesses, I'm not really going to have to worry about handling large volumes of stuff. I just want things that work consistently, easily, and where I can have more small projects without having to get bogged down into turning into a sysadmin in the middle of it. Yeah, because that definitely is a hat that you need to wear if you go down that route. Like a lot of time is spent figuring out like how to set up a server, how to automate things, how to do all these you know other things that Heroku does for you. Exactly. And so having any of that taken off my hands is for me a huge benefit. Like I said, with the with the databases is where I start questioning, okay, is this worth I think the first tier of Heroku's Postgres costs fifteen a month, which like I said is double what the dinos are costing right now. So that's where you have to ask, is that really worth worth the money that you're spending there? But in terms of the actual hosting itself, I have a hard time for small business clients saying that I wouldn't use Heroku in the future. Right. Yeah, I think even with DigitalOcean, their first tier of the managed Postgres is 15 a month, and that gives you one CPU core, one gig of RAM on that server. Exactly. So maybe now we can go over a couple other possible Heroku add-ons that you might be using. Like, what are you using for logging and metrics and error reporting? Um, for logging, I'm using PaperTrail. And then for metrics and stuff like that, honestly, the project's on a small enough scale that I'm just checking these things as part of my morning routine to just look through and make sure there wasn't any blips. And uh, I, I haven't really outsourced that just because I don't have enough familiarity with those services 
to where I want to put any strong reliance in them or start investing money in them. Because one of my fears with the Heroku add-ons is that you throw something in and accidentally get yourself a bill if you're not expecting it. Right. Yeah, it's, it's almost like AWS where you can very easily go from spending like $4.12 a month to like 1700 because something went crazy. Exactly. And that's that's the kind of hit that as a freelancer, you're very, very wary to take. Yeah, for sure. Now, also on the podcast, you know, I try not to give like unsolicited advice, but about that morning routine thing, mm-hmm. you know, I, I found myself doing things like that all the time. But there's this one cool service, and this is not a plug, like they're not sponsored or whatever, uh, uptimerobot.com. It's, it's kind of neat. So basically, you just point them to a domain name, like whatever health check URL that you want. They ping it every five minutes. If it doesn't get a status code 200, then they just shoot you an email and like, hey, your site's down, by the way. So it's kind of nice. It's like they become your morning routine, and you don't have to worry about it. Oh, that sounds very nice. Yeah, that, that would be a bit of peace of mind saved there. So I thank you very much for pointing me in that direction. Sure. And yeah, it's free up to, I think, 20 sites for one account, something like that. Oh, wow. All right. Well, there you go. That that would definitely be something that I would recommend to other people as well then. <laughs> yep. So also you mentioned that you have your database backups going on inside of Celery. Are you using their periodic tasks for that? Yes, I'm using the periodic tasks for that. And then there's, um, oh, there's one Django package I didn't mention, which is DB Backup. Um, which uh, just does quite literally, it's a PG dump, basically, in a wrapper, which is a Postgres database dump, which it then, you know, can go ahead and move straight to the S3 server. So I can get at least a, you know, I'm I'm getting a daily backup. I'm not having to to pay anything extra for that. And it's just wrapped up in my normal uh, periodic functions with salary, like it's pulling from the API getting cars. Yeah, no, periodic tasks and celery is amazing. And also just, yeah, SQL dumps are amazing as well. For most things, like you can totally definitely do daily backups or, you know, even like every six or 12 hours, even if you have like, you know, hundreds of thousands of rows or a million rows, like it still works at that scale. Exactly. And and something that I'm just really happy with is um, I had the production set up and running for about a week or two before I started doing the backups. And when I did finally sit down, I was like, all right, here's going to be four hours of getting this set up and testing it and all that stuff. And it turned into a 30-minute task, which which surprised me. So does that Django library also deal with things like rolling over the backups? Like you mentioned, it will do it every day. But like after, I don't know, 14 days or seven days, does it start deleting the old backups or no? Yes, it does keep, I want to say the default setting is 10 or something like that. So maybe now we can just change gears a little bit and maybe just go over what your deploy process looks like because, you know, not everyone listening has maybe used Heroku before. Do you just want to walk us through it? Like you're developing the project, you make a new feature, you know, what do you need to do to get that up and running in production? The process that I use is nowadays just a Git push, but all I needed to really instantiate that was using a Heroku YAML since the app is Dockerized. You just have to tell Heroku that you want to use containers, but outside of that, it runs very similar to Compose in terms of I do a git push and it loads everything up and Heroku then fires up the containers and gets everything going. Nice. So do you have like database deployments or database migrations as part of that deploy process too or no? I do not. The 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 Postgres and Redis instances 
uh, live on through that, so they're not affected by by a git push or me loading up new code. Right, but at the Django level, like if you make a change to your database schema and you need to change, like add a new column or something like that, you would typically run. I don't know what the Django command would be, but some type of database migration command. Exactly, that would be a, a Django migrate command, and uh, that's all stuff that I actually have integrated into my developer environment, so I can directly talk with the Heroku CLI, and I just do those things by hand. With this being a small-scale project, I just feel like some of the automation that I could build in there just ends up being wasted time that I can't end up building billing a client for and doesn't bring a lot of extra value to me. Right. So you don't mind putting in the elbow grease of running that every once in a while when like need to know basis type of deal? Exactly. Okay. So do you run any like local test suites before you decide to deploy all this or maybe do you even push it up to GitHub first or some other Git backend where a CI server can do that stuff? Yes. Since it's, you know, somewhat proprietary code and stuff like that, I use Bitbucket so that everything's not public like it would be on GitHub since they've got a free tier. And then I, I use PyTest for testing the entire application. So that's, once again, stuff I do by hand. I haven't gotten into using continuous integration services yet. Once again, just not not worth the extra time for what it is that I'm getting out of it. Right. So part of your deploy process, then, do you just push it up to Bitbucket first, maybe, and then you push it to Heroku secondly? Like two separate push commands with different origins? Exactly. So I use PyCharm and I can just run those push commands one after the other and be watching the status of each one running in parallel. Right. So has anything ever gone wrong like mid-deploy where it was like it caused some type of downtime or unexpected event? Um, I've, I've watched it crash a few times pushing it up to Heroku, but that was during some of the test builds. But it never ends up being anything too catastrophic, just in terms of, you know, Heroku. If you're using if you're using the command line, Heroku will give you feedback the entire time you're using a git push. If you're using PyCharm, obviously some of that stuff is getting hidden from you. But it's never been anything that another git push wouldn't at least override or get get going again. Right. So does Heroku give you an option then to do like some type of like, let's say you get pushed some commit, right? And the code worked locally, but for whatever reason, when you deployed it with Heroku, you know, you, you get pushed to their origin. Uh, things just didn't work. And now it's like you need to push it again. But at this point, you don't want to make like an another commit, like a silly commit, like, you know, add commit to make Hiro Heroku happy or something like that. Do they let you sort of just like repush the same commit? Uh, no, but if we're going to bring that up, I just have one small story that might be of use to somebody else at some point. I had made a change, and I use uh, version control and PyCharm, and I use U-Track to track, you know, individual issues. And I had made a change in one of my models, and I was pushing, and it wasn't showing up. And it was pushing, and it wasn't showing up, and it was obviously causing a fatal error in the Django code, and I pulled my hair out. I actually had to leave that problem sitting for like three or four days before I finally figured out it was another commit uh, where, where the model change had gone in with the uh, with the U-Track uh, issues. So the entire time I was pushing and making, like you were saying, stupid commits where I just add like a space or a period or something like that, and nothing was changing. I was pulling my hair out, but 
I can say if you're not seeing what you want to say, or if you're not seeing what you think you're pushing, maybe check your commits one more time and make sure nothing's pushed in a different issue. Right. Yeah, that is definitely a good tip. I can see being burned by that in the future somehow. <laughs> <laughs> and, and now we know the answer. So speaking of tips, like maybe what are some of your best tips and lessons learned from building this project? I'd say um, that you want to learn not just how to solve a problem, but you want to learn best practices as best you can. So, you know, um, as, a, as a software developer working with some of these larger applications and stuff like that, sometimes you hit things where you're happy to rely on Stack Overflow for something because you're looking to code and you're like, all right, this makes sense. This seems like a good way of doing things. When you're working with something like Django, at some point, you can't just go for the easy solution. You want to learn the smart solution. And like I was saying, I've got, I want to say, 670 lines of code of, of Python code running in my Django application that I had to write myself. And that is a testament to how good class-based views work. Before that, I wasn't using that as well, and I was using too many, you know, simple like, hey, I can get over this hurdle, you know, just by doing this but wasn't getting a good long-term solution and it was going to be harder to maintain. Yeah, that's really good advice. Now, you kind of just mentioned that you have, you know, roughly 700 lines of code that you wrote. Is the other 300 then just like test code then to make up the 1,000? Exactly. Right. Now, you mentioned though about, you know, eventually not just like getting a working solution, but making it like based on best practices. How did you arrive to get to that point? Was it just like writing a ton of code, like realizing what worked and didn't work and kind of figuring it out? Or did you like research a million things without writing code? And then like magically you just wrote the best code ever on the first shot. <laughs> well, um, as I said, I ended up building three different MVPs, all basically doing the same thing. But at every level I was going through, writing it, making it functional, presenting it to the client, but saying, hmm, I don't like the way this works. I wish I could offer the client this, but it didn't quite work as I expected it to. So I was consuming a lot of resources. So you've got the Django Chat podcast. One of the guys on there, Will Vincent, publishes his own books. And then you've got what I would consider to be the Holy Grail Bible of Django, Two Scoops of Django. And I just, you know, just kept putting my nose in the books and would come out and be like, oh, that's a better way to do this. Oh, that's... I, I like how they did that. That's way more clever than anything I ever did. Yeah, it's interesting you bring up like books as, as resources to learn from. I don't know how this works for you, but for me, I feel like when if I'm learning something sort of new, like a new web framework or something like that, you know, I may just skim the docs, get through the tutorial, in the Django case, like the voting tutorial, mm -hmm. and, and hack away on a project, make some progress, get the thing working. And then it's like after that point of maybe a couple of weeks, possibly even a month or two of developing, it's at that point, then I reach for learning resources like books and, you know, video courses and stuff like that. Because then I feel like when I'm re reading through that book, there's so many aha moments, like there's like 20 of them where I'm like, wow, you know, I was doing it in my app like this, but look at this, it's such a better way to do it. And then I go back and I have this massive, but really small and, and isolated and nice to-do list of like things that I can apply back to my app. Basically, it's like, I'm not a fan of reading books from day one, but only after I've gotten my hands dirty and written some code. Is it, does it work like that for you or is it totally different? Yeah, I'd say it's very similar for me to where I, I want to want to be sold on the promise of the code. Like you said, using using the polls app from Django or, you know, just walking in and 
trying something small, being like, oh, cool, I like the way this works before I'm going to invest straight in a book. Um, I, I started working on Angular like a year and a half ago and got like a few weeks into it and just said, mm, this isn't quite my thing. And I've been starting over the last few months in React now because I, I just like the, the community better. And I guess I'd say if we were talking about tips, that would be one of the things that I would have to say is you are free to use whatever frameworks, tools, language, or whatever you want. But understand if there's nobody there, you're going to have a hard time finding help. And um, I, I said I was working with the Web2Pi projects for other clients and trying to find help with those kinds of things, especially when you're getting into something that's not like, oh, I don't know how to do X operation, but trying to look deeper into the code. You're going to have a hard time finding people who are still responding to your message in a timely manner or even finding the, the results on a Google search in a way that would be helpful to you. Like Web2Pi had its last like major updates in like 2015 or 2016, but I was finding resources from 2010 that are next to useless because it doesn't apply to the modern releases anymore. So that's one of the things that really propelled me towards Django is that there is a live, big, and, you know, very active user base. Yeah, no, that, that's a very good point to bring up. Like having that community to lean on and get help from and also contribute back to is a, a really great thing to have. Mm -hmm. I, I just, just can't understate that. You, you want to have somewhere where you can find help. And sometimes if you're going off into these deeper corners, you're going to have a harder time finding that. Yeah, for sure. So Jesse, thanks a lot for coming on the Running in Production podcast. It was really great having you on. Nick, thank you very much for having me. It was a really good time. Yeah, no problem. So before we wrap this up, do you want to share any links to your site, Twitter, GitHub profile, anything like that? I actually keep an insanely low profile, so I have very little next to nothing to share. But if you're interested in finding our services, creon-it.de is the webpage for the consultancy I work for. That's C-R-E-O-N-I-T.de. And that's where you would be able to approach us for projects. Cool. And on that note, to everyone listening, thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you in the next one. You've been listening to the Running In Production podcast. You can find a full archive of the show at runninginproduction.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe using your favorite podcast player or leave a review if you like the show.